0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello and welcome to today's virtual Commonwealth Club program. My name is Dan Ashley, the evening anchor at ABC7 News and a longtime member of the Commonwealth Club Board of Directors and delighted to be uh, your moderator today. We are so glad you could be with us. This program is part of the Travers Family Foundation Ethics and Accountability Series with additional support from the Bernard Osher Foundation. And it is my pleasure to introduce Cindy McCain, author of Stronger, Courage, Hope and Humor in My Life with John McCain. You know, Mrs. McCain has dedicated her life to improving the lives of those less fortunate, both in the United States and around the world, particularly in Africa. She is chair of the Board of Trustees of the McCain Institute for International Leadership at Arizona State University, and also chairs the Institute's Human Trafficking Advisory Council. Mrs. McCain is also well known for her advocacy and support of military families, of course, her late husband, a celebrated veteran. She was married to Senator John McCain for 38 years, and her new book, Stronger, is a personal reflection of their incredible journey together, and it's a terrific uh, Read. I just finished it last night, as a matter of fact. Mrs. McCain, welcome. You're joining us from uh, Phoenix, where you spend so much of your time in Arizona. It's a very important place for you and your family.
1: Well, and I'm so happy to say that it has not reached 100 degrees here yet. We're close, but it's not, it's not 100 degrees yet
0: emphasize yet
1: (laughs) yeah yeah exactly listen I would also like to thank the Commonwealth Club I had several opportunities to join my husband when he spoke to the Commonwealth Club and and it was always a great experience so I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to be here today
0: well we're just delighted to have you with us and let me start by offering a belated condolence uh, for the loss of your husband for all of us he was certainly a great American
1: he was something else. He you know, he, he you joke about saying they broke the mold, but that's definitely the case. in, in with him, uh, he was someone that you know lived by the code of conduct. Uh, he he truly was mired in the fact that uh, he didn't appreciate people that did not respect our country. He didn't like, uh, you know, he 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 really believed that service to the country was something that was. So noble and such in a cause, you know, greater than than your own self-interest. As you know, you've heard him say.
0: I'm curious, uh, Mrs. McCain. What have you learned since his death about yourself?
1: Well, I, one thing I did learn about myself is, is that I could survive. I could survive a life without John McCain. Uh, I wasn't sure in the beginning because it was he was such a force of nature that to all of a sudden not have the the anchor in our family, not here. And I know many people know how this feels, you know, when to lose a loved one. But I wasn't sure, you know, I just, I I was rudderless. I didn't have, uh, you know, I knew I had plenty of things to do, which I did go back to, but it was, it was hard. It was a new normal and my new normal didn't have, you know, my mate and my playmate and my friend involved in it.
0: You know, one of the things that I found, Uh, so touching repeatedly throughout the book was how much of a role and that's this is I I recognized or I identified with it too because it's important to me I such that humor played such an important role in your relationship together and you know we often saw uh, John McCain on television as a as a very serious sober guy talking about very important national issues but he was a lot of fun too wasn't he
1: oh he was so much fun I've been asked often lately about what I miss the most, and I think I miss the humor the most because uh, he always had. You know, when things are really, really bad, you know, really tough, or we like we lost the 2008 race, you know, all the all the things that occurred during our our life, he could always level it out with humor. And it was always at the perfect timing, the perfect, <laughs> and, it, and it was such a nice thing because, you know, you never want to take yourself too seriously. And that was something he always reminded me of. And so I, I miss the humor and I miss the the um, the enjoyment that he got from life uh, are the things I really miss.
0: He did yeah. seem to embrace life fully as to yeah. you. And, but yeah. he, he also, had, he could have a silly sense of humor. He had a silly side, didn't he? A very oh, playful yeah. side.
1: Yeah, he did. He did. He was. He was just a fun guy. He was the kind of guy I'd have people say to me, "Gee, he's the kind of guy you want to go have a beer with," because he was so much fun, and that's the truth. I mean, he loved to talk sports. He liked to, to you know, to be. In fact, we all we all were sure that if he had retired from the Senate, he would have become a sports caster. <laughs> so. <laughs>
0: Oh, that's great. Well, I, I want to ask you about. There are a million questions I have for you, but I want to start just with the the book and the idea of writing this book and calling it stronger. Why did you title it stronger?
1: Well, the the title was is was and is important to me. Uh, like like a lot of women, I married my husband very young, and I was very shy and very naive and very. You know, I was from Phoenix, Arizona, and although I'd gone to college in California, I, I, you know, I had I was an only child and had a pretty sheltered existence. So when I arrived in Washington with my husband, um, I realized that that uh, I th- I met my match and what I could could endure and could really understand. It took me years to really begin to understand the workings of Washington and also understand how to move around in it a little bit.
0: It, it's it an intimidating funny. place.
1: It's very intimidating, yeah. It's, especially during the job John was doing, uh, you know, to be a, a, an elected member, because you know there's a, a an order in Washington DC, and it starts with the elected members.
0: It must have been uh, a whirlwind to go to Washington as a young, newlywed bride in the center of power in washington and 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 all of the good things that 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 encompass that but also all of the negative things washington's a very tough backbiting town and to to find yourself in the middle of that firestorm must have been a very very challenging.
1: well it was it was challenging for this reason like i said i was very young very naive i was very shy and and you know washington is anything but that and so for, for me, the, 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 what I realized early on is that I, was, I could either I could either fold from this or I could get my act together and figure out how to do this. And so I began this, this kind of a, this quest and this learning experience about not only how to navigate Washington, but how to do good things in Washington and how to be a good person in Washington, which sometimes doesn't always work. Uh, So, so, and I, you know, let, let's be very clear. John used to remind me there's no heavy lifting in this job. So, so we, we had a, a glorious life. It was, you know, I had a front row seat to history with my husband. And even though there were some dark times and sometimes perhaps I didn't understand, it was also an incredible ride with him.
0: Well, you got to see the country, meet people from all walks of life. You got to see the world and meet powerful and important people. Uh, what a great privilege!
1: Oh, an absolute privilege. And the older I became, um, I, I know, I obviously realized it. I realized it early on, but the older I became, I realized really what an adventure this is, and what and what what an opportunity that I've had as a as a woman, number one, and someone who who happened to have access to a man who was one of the most powerful people in Washington, if not the country.
0: What What did you learn of in those early? months and years in Washington about finding your place
1: yeah.
0: and and what advice would you give other women and men for that matter about finding your place when confronted with uh, uncomfortable environments?
1: Yeah. You know, it, it uh, for me, it was, uh, and I'll use the, the example that was in the book, the experience I had with Nancy Reagan. Um, she, you know, she was, you know, whatever for whatever reason, and and she knew my husband's ex-wife really well, so I don't fault her for any of this by any stretch. But she, so she had, she was on another team, and so she made it very uncomfortable for me throughout the years. It it wasn't just one experience, but it was the entire time she was alive, and so I learned from that. I learned forgiveness. I learned to to my as my mother said. Always be nice, always be kind, you know you will you will be glad you did in the end and I was. and so I had to learn kindness and respect and and dignity uh, uh, after being made sure that I was told I didn't have any of those so <laughs>
0: <laughs> Well, you know you it's interesting that you say that this went on for a period of time with uh, yeah. uh, former first lady Nancy Reagan. not just And the let, let me
1: say but let me say also. I respect her as first lady sure. and I respected President Reagan. I this I don't harbor any ill will. I'm just kind of defining what occurred to me.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, no, and understood in a fair point. And you make that very clear in the book that you have great respect yeah. for her. I and, do. and didn't take it personally, but it, it's it wasn't just well, the I did in the beginning. Where... <laughs> <laughs> Let's
1: be clear in the beginning I really did but take it a little personal.
0: Well that's fair. <laughs> you, you describe in the book that one dinner where she sort of makes a snarky comment toward you and yeah. cuts you off. But uh, I I guess that was emblematic of of how difficult an environment that could be.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It really, it was, I'd never been around anything like that. I mean, out, out in Arizona, everyone's friendly and, you know, and it was, I lived in an environment where everyone was friends and we had good times and, you know, and my family, you know, all those kinds of things. So this was a new experience for me. And John really had to tell me, uh, he's the one that really put me straight on really how to handle some of this and how to, to just take it in stride. I mean, that's the hardest thing of all is just to sit there and take it and then realize it's just it's their problem, not yours.
0: One of the lessons that you describe and something that, that seemingly was something that, yeah. that uh, Senator McCain was uh, a very uh, mindful of is to control your anger mm-hmm. and and respond uh, deliberately and not let things get under your skin not easy to do, though yeah. knives are out in Washington, but just in life, he yeah. seemed to be able to, and you yeah. seem to learn to, yeah. to model that behavior, to, to, a, to not take it too personally and yeah. not be angry and not hold grudges.
1: Exactly, and that's one of the reasons I wrote the book was for that reason, because if left to, to my own terms and not having really been around John very much, I probably would have held some grudges. <laughs> but but uh, he he reminded me, life's too short to to hold grudges and be angry. And and, you know, what life should be joyful and happy and and inspiring. And that's and that was really the lesson I took from that from him,
0: which is one of the inspiring aspects of his story is having been held captive for five years, had the opportunity to be released and chose not to. And he was brutally beaten and tortured and, and subjected to terrible treatment. And yet, as you write in the book, he came through that relatively unscathed in terms of emotional scars and still retained an optimistic outlook. You must have, I think the country marveled at that.
1: Yeah, It was, uh, he, he, again, he was a truly amazing man. And the large part of the reason he came through this, remember there were two different kinds of people serving. There were the people that were, were, had gone to school like John did to the Naval Academy and he was a professional soldier. That was who John was. But we had so many men, men serving that were not, they were drafted. So John's advantage was that he, he, you know, was a professional soldier, number one, and his use of, of humor. I mean, this, some of the funniest stories I've ever heard were when they were in prison together, the guys were at one point living in one room together And uh, the stories he regaled me from and everyone else from that was were really hysterical. Uh, You know, it was it it was his way. I think it was his way of coping also. But it was also a great lesson for him because, you know, he uh, he he could have come back very angry and he could have come back very defeated. And he didn't. And that was never more evident than when he and John Kerry were at the signing with President Clinton of the normalization of relations between us and vietnam to me that was Uh, that was the the act of forgiveness i never thought i would ever witness
0: what did he say about that
1: it was important to move on it was important to move on to him and he felt that that the only way to do it was was to help lead the way on that and it was time it was over it was time to move on and that's really genuinely how he felt
0: well, we, I don't want to dwell on this, but for just one moment, but I would be remiss, Mrs. McCain, if I didn't ask. On the subject of holding grudges, uh, President <laughs> President Trump uh, and your husband, your late husband, uh, didn't. there was no love lost between them, and, and President Trump was, uh, was often uh, uh, very nasty toward him publicly. Do you have any understanding of why that was the case? You write in the book that he was jealous, and I'm not surprised to hear that at all. He probably was jealous of the type of man that John McCain was with his service record to the country. But what do you make of that?
1: Well, I I really found it um, really odd. I mean, I couldn't understand how, no matter whether you liked John personally or not, how you could look at not just John, but all the other men that served that were POWs together with John and somehow denigrate their service because they were shot down that never made any sense to me. And John, it never made any sense to John, but, but as always, John didn't feel bad for himself. He felt badly for the other men, men, you know, that that held the same medals and things that he did for being shot down and being captured. Um, It's an, I I don't understand any of it. Uh, Again, I had to learn from John from his deathbed, how to deal with this. And I did. I mean, he, he taught me many things, how to live. And then he also taught me how to die with dignity. And that's exactly what happened. And that was part of it.
0: Let's talk quickly about the lesson of dying with dignity. What did you learn from your husband? I know when he was diagnosed, he really was the epitome of the stiff upper lip, at least publicly. Uh, But that entire process he retained sounded like a sense of optimism, even when he knew it was not going to go well. He tried to protect you and everyone else.
1: He did. He, you know, he he was a kind of man that of course protected his family, me and the children and, and his, and his other children as well. And so, so when it came time to really face the fact that this was not going to have a good outcome, um, we really took our cues from him. And he was, as you know, he was, he. I'll use the word stoic, although that's not really what it was. It was, the, uh, he was brave. He was dignified. He, he, knew he'd had a great life he knew he'd lived a great life and wanted to celebrate that and not have people feel bad for him and, and mourn him and that's really what occurred it was it, you know like everything obviously it was a horrible thing but um but it it all of us together realized uh you know that he had really really been had guided us through throughout this whole thing without us really knowing he was guiding us
0: you mention in the book uh, that interview. And I remember watching that interview uh, when the Senator said that as he looked back on his life, dealing with this diagnosis, that he is grateful and filled with gratitude. It sounds like you have come to that place as well, just filled with gratitude. But he did seem to uh, look back joyfully at his life and not, uh, and, and handle it with great dignity and not mourn what was being lost, but celebrate what he had had.
1: That's exactly, you, you described it perfectly. He would he, He really, really celebrated his life. And so all throughout the process of, you know, the the 14 months that he was struggling with this and then ultimately passed, I mean, we had a party one weekend. Uh, You know, he was very ill at that point, but he really wanted to bring his friends together, see everyone, you know, and have a good time. And so he insisted on a party. And so we had a costume party. I mean, it was. I know it, though, some of these things are not very well known, but I mean, we did. We had a we had a roaring 20s party and that's exactly what he wanted. And then and then one time we snuck him off to Vegas. I mean, he was wheelchair bound, but he loved going to Vegas. And so we took him. We, I got him up there and kept it kept it secret and kept it kept it um, just between us. But that was what he wanted to do. He wanted to celebrate and he wanted to be happy. And that's what we tried to do for him.
0: And have fun. Did he want to go play the slot machines or something in Las Vegas? Oh, last no, time? he
1: plays craps. Are you kidding? Oh, does he really? <laughs>
0: <laughs> did he win on that trip or not? He
1: did win. He had, oh. Actually, I have kind of a funny story because he, he won. He had some good luck at the table. And our younger son, when my husband passed, asked if he could have my husband's briefcase. And I said, of course, of course you may. And he got it home and he called me and he goes, Mom, he goes, Dad's winnings are in the briefcase. I didn't know they were in there. So he he scored some money, I guess, from the briefcase. (laughs) Well,
0: let's talk a little bit now. And there's so much I want to talk about what you've accomplished on your own as well. And and I want to move into that. You describe a lot of it in the book. But I I want to just dwell a little bit more on uh, John McCain's public life and your role in that and the decision to run for president. Describe that conversation and uh, and how you felt about
1: it. Well, the first time, you know, he ran twice. So the first right. time he came to me with this, it to me it was like a new adventure. It was, uh, you know, oh, we're gonna do this. You know, we knew we were a long shot. We knew we probably wouldn't win, but but the race was great. And so the conversation was an easy one. The second race was a different deal because I knew what we were getting into and I, I was still Bruised from what had occurred to to Bridget, and so so he took me to the Maldives, as I write about in the book, uh, to then to and we had a lovely week. We spent a week in the Maldives, and then he uh, it, one night, you know, I had a drink in my hand. We were on a sandy beach, and he said, you know, I really want to run for president. And even though I thought I had dug my heels in and was going to say no, I realized that who was I to say no to a man? aspire to the highest office in the land and could possibly win it so i had to really really step back and then of course support him 100 percent, which i did
0: it was a different time the second much time different, around because much he different. had a real a real shot that time obviously yeah. and everyone knew it even in the primaries well and,
1: and uh, social media was just in its infancy but it was having an effect i mean it, it was a much different kind of race the second time not bad it? not bad in any way but just you know just a different kind of race
0: yeah, probably more intense in a lot of ways. Because much more so, yeah. D- did you enjoy that process? It's exhausting. It's stressful. Your, your uh, barbs are being thrown at you constantly. Did you still enjoy the process and did the center?
1: Yeah, we both did very much. You know, we you walk away from it because it's called being in the bubble, and you're in the bubble so long that you make great friends, and some of them are journalists <laughs> that you become right. friends with. But I mean, it it and and those those people are some of our dearest friends now. Uh, they uh, the kinds of experiences you have together, especially especially when you're trying to do something that could be so meaningful for the country, and to be able to watch people respond to John and watch them, uh, you know. Either, even if they disagreed with him, still respond to him in a positive way. It was really fun to watch. And very, to me, it was very heartwarming to, to see it.
0: Let's talk about the decision to select Sarah Palin as mm-hmm. uh, running mate. Uh, it was praised and also criticized uh, in equal measure, uh, maybe mm-hmm. more the, the, the latter. Was that a good decision in retrospect or a mistake
1: you know it it was the decision, and John was one that never looked back hindsight you know he didn't believe in hindsight being twenty twenty um uh, what you know and it was I write about it in the book uh we both have have looked very long and hard at Lieberman Senator Lieberman i'm sorry and uh and and it would have been a great opportunity to have run a bipartisan ticket you know a Republican candidate and a democratic vice presidential candidate. But the truth it was we couldn't get it through the um, the convention, and so we had to look at other alternatives and I think J- John wanted to, to bounce outside the box a bit you know that was the kind of guy he was and so so he we took a chance on her
0: the history knows what happened with the race as a result and uh, there were high moments there were low moments. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's interesting to read in your book that uh, Sarah Palin uh, did not reach out to Senator McCain in the time that he was ill and did not come to his funeral. It was not invited. Tell me about that. Were you surprised that she never reached out when he was sick?
1: I was. uh, Look, it didn't mean it didn't matter to me one way or another who reached out. I wanted my husband happy. I wanted him to be to know that he had been loved and that people respected him. And so there were there were some within our core group of people that I thought, well, sure, they'll be here. Of course, they're going to come because it was my job to organize all that. And it was my job to to, um, you know, make sure everyone was was comforted, you know, had had food, you know, all those kinds of things. And so I was just surprised, really, is what I was. Uh, my, My husband, as always, never, never dwelled on that and never said an angry word at all. Truly.
0: He didn't. No. That's so interesting. I I won't ask you uh, who surprised you by not coming because you wrote about Sarah Palin. That's why I asked it. Who surprised you by showing great uh, sympathy and and concern for your (laughs) husband? Were there any surprise visits or calls that you didn't really expect to hear from?
1: Oh, yeah. Um, uh, One in particular was Rahm Emanuel and his wife. I mean, we 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 were friends with them in the beginning after President Obama was elected. But Rahm Emanuel and his wife came. I mean, uh, uh, Mitch McConnell came. Of course, Joe Biden came Uh, and the heads of state came. I mean, we had I tried not to exhaust my husband. So I would do three days a week where we would have people and then the other four were waiting for him to rest and recuperate from it. Um, People were the outpouring was simply amazing. It was just simply amazing. And and uh, lots of surprises. Lots of you know the Romneys came. The um, obviously a lot of senators came. A lot of, of uh, House members came. It was it was a very nice tribute to him. And did they? Uh,
0: forgive me. Were they coming to the ranch in Arizona? Mm-hmm. Or to, yeah,
1: that's quite yeah. a trip. Yeah.
0: That's that's not yeah, easy. Yeah, it is enter. quite a trip. Yeah,
1: yeah it that's is. Telling. People came from overseas to see him. Um, it, it was such a tribute to who he was as a man and as a leader, uh, to see these people really want to, you know, pay their tribute to him. And, and he was, you know, he wound up comforting them, quite frankly, it was kind of what it was all about. And, uh, but it was, yeah you know, I'm so grateful for everything.
0: Did President Trump call? I know he didn't come visit at the Rotunda. Did he call at all?
1: He called, uh, John wound up in Walter Reed at one point in Washington, and he called that night. He called me that night. So I did speak with him. But that was way early. This was, oh, I guess maybe December of the year prior. He, John died in August of 2018. So it was December of 17.
0: What was that conversation like?
1: He was just calling to see how he was and how I was. It was it was Spartan, but it was fine. I mean, he was not he was not angry or rude or anything. So no.
0: And you, you appreciated the call, I'm sure. Of course. Of yeah. course yeah. I
1: did. It was the president of the United States. Of course I did.
0: I, let, let me turn my attention now to some of the things that I find so fascinating about you. And what was really interesting, uh, Mrs. McCain, about this book, is, it, and I, I really enjoyed it because there were several surprises. And every handful of pages, there was something I learned that I did not know about you or about Good. the senator. Or about, it was very interesting. And, and um, one of which was, uh, and I think a lot of people will relate to this, you were afraid of flying tell everyone how you conquered that fear and what happened as a result
1: well when john told me he was going to run for the senate i knew because of arizona is a very rural state and we'd have to fly around the state to get any any work done for sure so i knew we were going to be in small airplanes so i decided uh, i didn't tell my husband um i uh, went to take ground school lessons and i thought well you know that at least i'll know what's going on i'll know what kind of what how to read the instruments and all that as it turned out, I loved it. And I wound up getting a pilot's license, getting an airplane, and then I flew him. I was his pilot during the, the eighty six campaign. <laughs> so
0: literally flew him around.
1: I literally flew him around.
0: I did. How was he? He must have been so incredibly proud. Was he a nervous passenger?
1: No, he wasn't a nervous passenger at all. He sat in the back and read. I mean it was he left it to me and you know, and whoever else was in the plane, you know, the his staff or whatever. But it, I mean, it was really fun. And he was really happy for me he was very proud of me which i really loved
0: (laughs) well and that's a that's a life lesson isn't it i mean that's a lot of people can take away uh, from your experience that you took something on that was intimidating and challenging and decided to make it something that you embraced Uh, that's a great life lesson
1: it is it is and i think you know for me stepping outside the box or, or going outside my limits I always do. I I like doing it because it is a challenge and it's a challenge to me, but it's hard too. You know, you step out it's you're not in your comfort zone when you do it.
0: <laughs> well, so much my my youngest son who's 28 today as a matter of fact, <laughs> yes. uh is as uh, as a pilot and is training to be uh-huh. a commercial pilot. And I'm not a big small plane person either myself yeah. to be honest. I've done it many uh-huh. times. I'm not crazy about it, but he keeps telling me you should learn to fly and you'll get over
1: that. Yeah. I agree with him on that. You know, I we uh, the staff used to joke with John we'd be flying from wherever it was. One particular trip was to Boston, and it was a very bumpy trip. Again, a small plane. This is during the presidential run. And and John's sitting there reading, and I look over at, at Mark Salter. I'll tell the story on him. And he had pictures of his kids sitting on his knees because <laughs> he was so scared. <laughs> and so we we began the joke that ran around all of the offices and all of the people is that, you know, because John would say, I'm not going to die in a plane crash. I crashed too many. And 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 he said, but we said, no, it'll crash. John McCain lives. Others die. <laughs> exactly what would occur. Yeah. We wouldn't even mention it.
0: <laughs> if anyone were to walk out, it would have been him.
1: <laughs> yeah, he'd walk
0: away completely from it. Interesting. Um, well, so you began this this process of sort of uh, personal growth as a result of being thrown into this uh, whirlwind of a life. You learned to fly an airplane. You learned to function in Washington. Uh, you became, for someone who was very shy from Arizona, you learned to become a public speaker. And, uh, and I presume to the point where you're very comfortable doing it now and, and, and don't think too much about it when you do it. Uh, What were some of the I know there were many, many highlights with you and the senator, but for you personally, what were some of what were some of the most salient moments as a politician's wife, but also as a very prominent American?
1: Well, I think one of the most for me was uh, my speech at the Republican National Convention. Um, I had I, I once again, I stepped outside my comfort zone. I didn't use a podium and I walked and talked a lot like Elizabeth Dole had done in San Diego. And, uh, because I wanted to, I wanted to be around the people and I wanted to be close to them when I did it. And it, it took me some time to get that down, but when I finished it and completed it and realized what an impact it had, it was like, this is why you do this job is to reach people. And so I had, had had an opportunity because of my husband to be able to do this. And, uh, that evening was very special to me. It was very special.
0: Well, that must have been nerve wracking before you went. Oh out. God,
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <Just> yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> terrifying. You know, there's an old line which is supposedly uh, uh, true that that uh, more people are fl- afraid of public speaking than they are <laughs> of being in a plane crash.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I would agree with that. I'm very, I not anymore, but it, it was hard for me to, to to really do it. And I think also uh, understanding that that. What an opportunity to be able to speak that people would want to, first of all, hear you speak speak and want to speak to you about issues that are important to you. And for me, it's been many things, as you know, human trafficking among many of them. Um, but so it was it just was such a, an honor to be able to be a part of that.
0: Well, and I want to talk about some of these causes that are important to you. I'm sort of saving that as we go along here. But um, when before you walked out and gave that speech, and I remember watching it uh, uh, very closely. What was your objective? What were you hoping to accomplish?
1: I wanted to I wanted the American people to see me other than how the press had described me. They described me as aloof. they described me as you know as uh, uncaring you know all the things and really all of that was all, all chalked up to being really shy <laughs> and right. and so so I wanted them to see me in a different light and and hopefully hopefully when they when they are looking at candidates to choose, choose because you look at the wife too or the spouse too um, uh, to, that they would think that I, I could do a good job as first lady, you know, that I would re- represent them well. And that was really what I wanted to do. And I wanted to do it for my children. My, my kids were, you know, the, just everything about that. My, my son had gotten home from Iraq prior to it. I mean, we had it, there was a lot of emotions going on that week. And so it was it was a good time.
0: When you uh, – let's go from the good time to uh, – I don't want to say a bad time, but a difficult time when you lost the election. And I know there was a lot of – you write in the book about some self-doubt you had. If, had you done everything that you could? Had you done the best? When when you lost the election, uh, what was the senator's reaction? How did you you both as a couple – take that news
1: you know we knew some days ahead that we probably weren't going to make it just because the bottom had fallen out of the economy you know you know all the, the all the sure. history that took place so we had some idea that was going that the, that was going to happen what the reality of it was we had to tell our kids because we had not shared that with them and so we had to pull them all aside at once and explain to them what was going on and where what we were going to do that night which was John was going to give this eloquent speech. And uh, and that was hard because, you know, they've put everything into it, too, even though my two sons couldn't campaign because they were in the military. They were still very much a part of it. It's their father. So that was the hard part in that. But John and I both uh, we knew, you know, you you've got a 50 50 chance when you start when, (laughs) when you do something like that. So we knew. And I I guess I describe it in the book, but, you know, we came home and couldn't find the car keys and couldn't find the house keys because we've been driven around for two years.
0: (laughs) What's so interesting about that is you're going 100 (laughs) miles an hour and then all of a sudden it stops.
1: Bam, dead still. You're you're exactly right. Uh, Two hours prior to going down for the for the speech, we had a 100 car motorcade and going home. There was just us two Ling in the car.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Back to reality, right?
1: (laughs) Back to reality. That's Uh, right.
0: Mrs. McCain, we have a question from uh, uh, from our audience. Uh, What three adjectives would you use to describe Senator McCain?
1: Oh, joyous, um, uh, uh, deliberate, um, and caring.
0: Interesting. Okay, excellent. Thank you for that question. Uh, Another question from our audience. Uh, You and your husband were married for 38 years. Is there any marriage advice that you can share with all of us?
1: Patience. <laughs> Patience, uh, you know, like any, our marriage was no different than anyone else. We just did it in front of the world. Um, you, you have to be patient. You have to be kind and understanding. You know, we learned the same lessons that everybody else did. Uh, that have a long marriage, and um, uh, but boy, I'd do it over in a, in a heartbeat yeah. uh, if I had a second chance.
0: Uh, even under so much pressure, often
1: mm-hmm.
0: professional pressure, you both seem to to. Cling to one another and depend on one another, and not let that pressure divide you. At least that's the the impression that we get. Is that right?
1: We were very much partners in this, and it was uh, we ha- you have to be. I mean, because many times <clears throat> the only the only truth you're going to get that day, and I don't mean people were lying to my husband. Please don't misunderstand me. But sometimes, yeah, you did a great job. But, you know, when he and I both knew we didn't do a good job, and so it was time Here. to that those kinds of things. Um, it was, uh, you know, you know, it was a, we were partner, very strong partners in this, and he ran everything by me during, during both races and all the races, actually all the Senate races and the house races too. And consequently I did the same thing, you know, in trying to figure out a path for every, everybody and what was going on. Um, it's one thing to run for president. If I can say this, the way we did, it's very public, everyone knows. And it's another thing to do it with a child in combat. And that that was a double whammy for me because it was my son was in combat in Iraq and we couldn't say a word about him. You know, we would have endangered him. And so the added stress for me and for John, too, uh, during that time was very intense. It was very intense.
0: Uh, That brings up an interesting point, because uh, with your son in combat, uh, your ex-husband, I mean, ex-husband, late husband, Senator John McCain, of course, a combat veteran kept prisoner for five years, he understood the risks in a very real way that your son was undertaking. It's different for a mother. Uh, and how did you, the two of you, how was Senator McCain with your son in combat? Did he worry to the same level you did or or understanding what was going on, it was a different experience for him?
1: You know, John, uh, John always did share things with me, but during the time that Jimmy was in Iraq, he didn't talk much about it. Uh, any information I wanted, I went to Lindsey Graham to get because, you know, I was I was reading things and listening to the news. And, of course, I, I was it close to where he's at. Do we know what's going on? And Lindsey always told me what was going on. But John couldn't do that. He just he 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 dealt with it in his own way. I mean, he certainly talked about him, but but, um, you know, John d- just dealt with it in, in a different way.
0: Was he worried sick as you were or different? Because as his experience is better.
1: Well, I'm sure he was worried sick, but he never he never exhibited it at all. I mean, I exhibited it. I mean, I, everyone that would listen to me, I'd tell. So.
0: <laughs> Understandably. <laughs> we can all relate to that. As you know, Mrs. McCain, this program is part of the Travers Family Foundation's Ethics and Accountability Series with additional support from the Bernard Osher Foundation. Ethics and accountability, certainly two words that can be used to describe your late husband. Mm -hmm. Let's take, uh, we have a couple of questions from our Mm -hmm. Travers Fellows, and let's begin with the first question, and I'll have you respond after we uh, hear what this young person has to say. Hi, Mrs. McCain. My name is Katrina Bullock, and I am a third year at UC Berkeley studying political science. My question for you is, how do you think future leaders of America can work together to relieve bipartisan tension?
1: That's a really good question. I'm glad she asked that. First of all, I love the fact that you go to Berkeley, but I went to USC, so we are rivals in all all this. Um, You know, uh, it's up to to all of us that are my age and your age and others to leave the world a better place for those who are behind us, who come in behind us. Um, Unfortunately, I don't know that we've done that great a job this time. So it's up to these young people to take the helm, and work together, practice the things that we have talked about within the generation but haven't done a very good job at. And and work civilly with others, find civil discourse, find the ability to to perhaps agree to disagree. But we if we continue this screening match that's going on around the world, and, and I know everyone's familiar with it, we're never gonna get anywhere. And I'm I have great faith in young people like your like your your the recent question. Um, because I believe that they've had enough. I think they've seen what's happened with, with all this going on and they have had enough and they're going to take charge now. And I think that's a wonderful thing. It's really wonderful.
0: You know, I think we've, we see so much more activism among young people lately Mm -hmm. and whether it's the Me Too movement, the Black Lives Matter movement. Now a lot of people rallying around what's been happening to Asian Americans in the country. Uh, but there was a period of time where there was so much, I felt, cynicism from young people about politics that they that many wanted to check out. I think a lot of people wanted to check out of all ages. But there is, it seems, a renewed sense of uh, commitment by young people, who after all will drive uh, our futures, to right. be involved, to be committed to causes, and to make a difference. I know that must make you happy and would certainly make the senator very happy.
1: Oh, Yeah. Uh, you know, our next generation leaders are very important. And no matter what field you may be in, the truth is we need you. And we need people to be active, uh, maybe not in politics, but in, in in areas that I do, nonprofit work and, and other things like that. It's all very important. And I'm grateful that these young people are now pretty much standing up and saying, OK, enough now. It's our turn. And we're going to do a better job at it and i I'm just I've watched the same activism that you have with the black lives black lives movement and the and the and all the other things that happened and Phoenix was very very tragically affected by a lot of this, mm-hmm. and it's to me that had never occurred in Phoenix before to see activism to that degree and even though there was some damage and things that occurred, it was wonderful that people were active and out there doing it and It was hot in those days it was in the middle yeah. of summer here, and I was grateful for it.
0: You know, it's a great point because uh, while so many difficult things have happened the last year during the pandemic, and the, the the silver lining is that they've gotten people out in the streets, peacefully in the streets, those people demonstrating, and gotten people involved uh, and really raised a lot of awareness and a lot of aspirational ideas among young people. And that's a very good thing.
1: It is a, it's an absolutely, it's a marvelous thing because because for those of us who, who have tried our best and we hope we made a little bit of a difference, um, then comes this generation that are truly engaged and they, they truly want to be a part of, of making this country a better place. And I, I just it really warms my heart. And my children are included in that. All four of mine are very, very active in their various areas and what they you know, what they do, what they do together.
0: Well, let's uh, listen to the second question now from our Travers fellow. Good afternoon, Mrs. McCain. My name is Thara Madhav, and I'm a senior at UC Berkeley majoring in political science and history. Your activism around equitable access to health care comes from your personal experiences. How can young people identify and advocate for issues that are important to them? Thank you so much.
1: What I tell uh, people that come to me and say, I want to get involved, how do I do it? Well, the first thing I say to them is, First of all, you have to do it from your heart. Whatever moves you, it has to touch your heart because that drives you to, to be a part of whatever issue it may be, whatever it may be. You have to be excited about it. You can't do it just to do it. And so I tell people, find something. It doesn't matter what it is. You don't have to go you know, to the bizarre places I wind up in or anything like that. Your own community needs you. So I remind everyone, first of all, you're, it has to come from your heart. And that's a lesson that Mother Teresa told me. Uh, uh years ago um, was to do it, do it with your heart. and so and, and that and also uh, realizing that, that if you do it, then people are going to follow. people are going to follow you into it or follow you through it or whatever it may be uh, to, to, to help make change. And that's exciting. It's really exciting, but you can't you can't do it because it whatever issue it is, you can't do it because it may be the issue of the day, the fad, you know what I'm saying? You have to do it because you really believe it. And that's the most important part.
0: That's an excellent takeaway. It has to be sincere. It has to be authentic. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, let me, I want to turn to some of your activism before we wrap up. But uh, prior to that, I want to talk about something else you talk about in the book that I think can be uh, helpful to a lot of people. As you well know, we have an opioid crisis in this country. Mm -hmm. And it's devastating communities and families all over America. It's only been getting worse. That's something you know about firsthand. Please tell us a little bit about that, and then your thoughts on what we need to do.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, when this all began for me, I had the attitude that, "Oh, this will never bother me. That only happens in other neighborhoods or other other places." And as a result, o- opioid addiction is in every family. Whether you want to gr- whether you want to believe it or not, it's there. Addiction of some kind is there. The miraculous thing that has occurred, even though we have a serious issue, is that people are beginning to recognize it's a disease. It's not an affliction. When I was when I came forward with this years ago, uh, the the media and the people, you know, the general public thought, "Well, oh my God, she's crazy. She's she ooh, who does that?" You know, and they shamed me for it, and I was mm-hmm. sick. I was really sick. So now we have an, a media and a general public that are much more understanding of the fact that it is a disease, and, and shame plays no part in this. It should never be a part of anyone in the way that they deal with someone who has an addiction problem. And there are ways to get help. I tell every audience I talk to, there, there are ways to get help. Call me. I will get help for you, whatever, whatever the issue may be. Um, but, I'm, but we're there for you. Those of us who walk the walk, we're, we're there. Were you surprised at how it, at the power it had over you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, addiction is a very cunning enemy. Uh, This is something that I was full-blown addicted, and my husband never knew because I was so good at hiding it from him. And, and so it's things like that. I mean, it, it was, it it was such a, it over, it overwhelmed my life. And it was my parents, as I describe in the book, my parents came to me and said, they're, they they did not know what it was, but they said, there's something wrong with you. You, Whatever it is, let us help you. And that was the best thing they could have done. I went cold turkey that night.
0: And the lesson is there's help and there's a way out.
1: Right. And there's no reason, even though shame is the first thing you feel with something like this, don't feel shame, because shame shame will only take you down. Feel empowered, and now it's time to get help and make walk the walks. Make take that first step, and it's hard to do. But there's plenty of us out there that will walk that step with you.
0: It's even harder on someone who's living a public life, as you yeah. know. you know. That's that's even yeah. that's a challenge that most people don't yes. have.
1: Yeah. No, it was the cartoons and things that things that I shouldn't have looked at, but I did uh, The cartoons that were drawn about me and the articles and stuff. It, it's a good lesson. And I like to preach to the media a little bit when I when I talk about this, because they were very much a part of it. They were the one drilling, the, you know, making it, making it ginning the whole thing up, I should say. Uh, so, yeah, but it's, you know, something in this country we do have we have medical care that can help you with addiction and can can lead you uh lead you into a better life. And so uh, I know healthcare is a whole different um a whole different topic, but it's there, helps there.
0: We're almost out of time. I want to ask a couple more questions, uh Mrs. McCain and give you the opportunity to talk a little bit about uh human trafficking and other causes that are important to you. Why how are you spending your time now in public service?
1: Yeah. I am uh full blown. I didn't really take any time off, which is why this book was rather cathartic for me to write because i started writing it during the pandemic but just pri just post my husband dying i went straight back to work and so grieving had did not occur until much later on and so the process was was interesting for me and it was good for me it was good for me to slow down and and take a look at it. But what I'm doing is I'm working very hard uh, in, in the human trafficking arena. We have a lot of projects that are working not just here in the United States, but overseas. Um, you know, this is a scourge. And this is, it, it, you know, we, we hear about guns, we hear about drugs, we hear about uh, uh, art, you know, precious art, but we don't hear that much about human trafficking, the human toll that this is taking and so I view my job as not only bringing awareness to the world stage, but also to making sure that people hear me. You know, this is not a woman's issue, believe me. <laughs> so so that's that's where I believe that I can be best helpful with this.
0: You are to be commended for continuing to raise awareness for that very Thank important you. issue that uh, affects families and, and, and communities all over this country in, in ways we don't know. It's a very insidious yeah. problem, you know, yeah. Um Last question I want to ask and give, just give you the opportunity um, to describe the message, the overriding message that you want people to take from this book. It's called Stronger for a Reason. What do you hope men and women who read this book will walk away with?
1: Well, I think one thing I'd like to to remind women out there who are perhaps right now overwhelmed. They've got maybe four kids at home and they're tired and plus they have to work, you know, all and of course the pandemic has tripled that. Is that is that you are strong. And I had to discover that within myself. I didn't know I was strong. But I ha- I discovered it and I and I started to use it for good. And so I like to remind people that that being uh, that finding that and staying with that voice and you reminding yourself every day that you are strong and you can do this and whatever's going on in your life, you can get through this. And for me, it was the same thing because I it, I just did it on a world stage. I'm no different than anyone else out there. I just happen to have a TV in front of it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, Cindy McCain, you've just been delightful and very generous Thank with you. your time and uh, you. we're terribly grateful to have you with us today. Thank you. i Ordinarily, I would pause and allow everyone to applaud you, but we, since we're virtual, we can't do that. Uh, 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 They're doing it in spirit. I'm sorry we didn't get to meet in person. uh, Our thanks to Cindy McCain, author of Stronger Courage, Hope, and Humor in My Life with John McCain. It's a really great read, I have to say, for being with us today, Cindy. We really appreciate it. Uh, And our generous supporters, uh, the Travers Family Foundation and the Bernard Osher Foundation, we are deeply grateful for their continued support. We encourage you uh, to pick up a copy of Cindy McCain's new book at your local bookstore or order it. It's well worth your time. My name is Dan Ashley from ABC7 News in San Francisco and a Commonwealth Club board member. Uh, Thank you very much for your time. We appreciate your being with us today, and I'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California.